the Evangelical Lutheran Good Samaritan Society is approaching its 100th birthday. And while the organization's leaders would like to see the not-for-profit skilled nursing operator provide care for another 100 years, that doesn't come without enormous challenges. Good Samaritan has had to close or sell nine facilities in just the last eight months, the vast majority of which were in rural communities. The American Healthcare Association has projected 400 SNF closures in 2022, with nearly 240,000 job openings as a primary driver. Good Samaritan currently has 2,000 job openings. On average, that's roughly 14 openings per facility. Despite the significant headwinds seen by both Good Sam and the industry as a whole, CEO Nate Shima feels keeping providers like his operating in smaller markets is now more important than ever. I spoke with Nate to find out why. Before we get to that interview, I wanted to promote our in-person Rethink conference happening on September 1st in Chicago. Hosted by Skilled Nursing News, Rethink is the premier skilled nursing event dedicated to trends, challenges, and the future of the industry. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com events for the latest updates on the conference and our other scheduled events. Nate, you recently returned from Washington, D.C. to advocate on behalf of Evangelical Lutheran Good Samaritan Society and the long-term care sector for the annual congressional briefing. What were your two takeaways from the meeting with congressional leaders? You know, I, I think one of the biggest takeaways I had was, you know, how engaged the staffers and the senators were up on the Hill. I think you're always hopeful that they're going to have a, a really good handle on the issues that might be in your sector. But with everything that's happening up on the Hill right now, you're just always a little concerned that maybe it'll be white noise or it'll be lost because there's just just so many other topics. So I think what was really cool for us to see was they understood how challenging some of these workforce issues were. They understood the needs of the sector and, and how much we were hurting in, in long-term care. Um, and then I think what was really cool to hear, see as a, as a takeaway from just our time there, I got back and then yesterday I, I was talking with one of my team members and he said, hey, Nate, you know, one of the, the senator's office that we met with, they signed on to the letter. And so it was, it was just so affirming that, hey, they heard us and they're, you know, really vested in seeing everything that we do, seeing all the, the residents get the care and the, the work and, and address some of the workforce challenges that we're seeing. So that, that was probably one thing. And then, of course, you know, seeing Senator Manchin there in person talk through his firsthand account of, you know, all the different dynamics up on the Hill and, and just how he's you know, live that out firsthand at the Good Samaritan Society, having some buildings in West Virginia. I think it just helped me better understand, you know, how to communicate and advocate uh, for the different needs that we have within our sector. So just definitely a great experience this week. Absolutely. It sounds like it was quite the productive week. Now, you mentioned a letter that a senator signed on to. What, what are you referring to in that? You know, we had this, one of our big asks this week, there was two main things that we wanted to get across with uh, the senators that we met with is, hey, we want you to understand just how important it is that we we change the narrative on this workforce issue and that you know, there's just not people there. We have over 2,000 open positions right now at the Good Samaritan Society. And the impact that that's having on us in, in rural America is extremely real. For us, that, that comes down to roughly 14 plus open positions at any any one of our, our, our places. So when you're talking in rural North Dakota, where you you might be missing one or two nurses and the impact that might have, you know, it's just so crucial that they understand just what that looks like in uh, rural America. So we don't, you know, institute some sort. So CMS doesn't put together some sort of one size fits all approach to a minimum staffing requirement. So we're, we're really advocating 
to say, hey, this is what a minimum staffing requirement would mean for uh, the Good Samaritan Society, especially in, in rural America. And then the second thing that we, we really wanted to get across is this whole parity adjustment that we're facing in the sector. When we switched over from the PDPM or switch into the PDPM reimbursement system here a couple of years ago, fully on board with the methodology. We knew there would be budget neutrality concerns or budget neutrality would be back on the table um, post pandemic. But based on where the sector's at right now, any reduction in our Medicare rate is, is impactful. And so we're just asking for that parity adjustment to be introduced uh, over three years. Give us some runway so we can continue to build back our occupancy, so we can continue to, to build our workforce back up, so we're in a better place as a, as a sector and as a whole, uh, so we can weather this tremendous storm. Gotcha. Now, do you feel more or less confident that federal leaders better understand the challenges facing the industry, obviously, as you've talked about, you know, in light of the ways in which the industry has been under a spotlight over the last several months. 100% feel better about it. And, you know, I, I probably didn't even finish that last thought, but you, you know, you're talking about these two big issues and, uh, t- you know, Senator Bennett came away and the next day he signed on to Senator Tester's letter advocating that we have this three, three-year runway on the parity adjustment. You know, I've had the unique opportunity to be in front of uh, CMS Administrator Jakita Brooks-Lashur here um, and also Secretary Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra over the last couple of months. And so I've been able to see how they've responded to our sector and listen to where we've been and, and where we stand right now. So I would say that initially I was thinking, gosh, I'm not sure these folks really understand just what this looks like and how this is coming to life in our sector. You know, all of us feel the pain of going to get a hamburger right now and spending you know, $25 uh, to get a burger and fries. I, I feel that acutely. Uh, but what's unique about our sector, as you know, is we don't have the ability to pass those costs on. So as our supplies are going up, as our labor costs are going up, we don't have the ability to pass those on to, to our residents and their families when we're serving 50 plus percent of Medicaid population. So to hear, you know, the responses early on here a month or two ago from the administrator to Secretary Becerra, and then now to see the responses from uh, the senators, it's evident to me that they're getting this. They've done site visits, they're hearing from their members, and they're understanding just how real uh, our issues are. Yeah, it seems like there's been somewhat of a, of a change in tone, or at least a, an indication that people are listening. And it will be interesting to see as the comments are, are closing and, and the decisions are being made, you know, how that all shapes up in the end. Absolutely. So, you know, let's just take a, a brief step back here and, and talk about your first six months on the job. Uh, how do you think you've grown as a leader? Oh, that's a big one. You know, I think for me, as I look back in the last you know few months, I think I've grown in trying to, instead of being that the person that is, you know, the go-to guy for everything, uh, being in the mix on every issue, I'm learning how to best use the gifts and talents of my team. You know, how do I bring out the best in my I feel like I have an extraordinarily talented group of, of leaders and vice presidents around me. And, you know, I'm figuring out that, you know, hey, I don't need to be the one that has the answer all the time. I, I'm getting better at asking the right questions to help them grow and to help best utilize all the gifts and talents. Nine times out of 10, they have all the answers. We just got to make sure that we're asking the right questions. And I, I feel like uh, with each passing month, with each passing board meeting, with each passing, you know, all staff meeting, I'm getting a little bit better and I'm getting a little sharper at, at doing that. 
I know delegation can be a difficult task for many people. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> and so what would you say are two of the biggest successes and challenges you've faced thus far? I'll start with the, the fun one first, maybe. Uh, you know, successes, I think what I've tried to do from day one is, you know, connect with our leaders, connect with our staff. And I'm, I'm always upfront and saying, you know what? We at the corporate office, we in the executive, as the executive team or C-suite, we don't exist without our field leaders and with the, the incredible work that our, our frontline workers do day in and day out. We're, we're just not here. We're here to serve. And so I think, you know, what we've done really well over the last six months has been connecting with those folks. I've done, a, I've done gosh, a dozen, maybe 15 site visits in my first couple months here as our new president and CEO. Um, I think I've also tried to connect with our leaders in a way in real time. And what that looks like here for us is we have this, uh, I call it my note from Nate section that we try to put out about every other week. And, you know, I just want our leaders to hear directly from me. We, you know, little videos and clips, clips that I, that I put out to just so they know what issues are we tackling with and, you know, give them the opportunity then to, you know, shoot me a note back and say, Hey, I think we need to be thinking about this. So trying to be really intentional to hear the needs of the field uh, so we can address things in real time. Uh, to the second part of the question, challenges, I think the first one is, is pretty well documented. It's workforce with you know, 2,000 plus open positions. It's, it's, a, it's a palpable issue right now and, and something that we're grappling with and, and trying to creatively address. Uh, but I'll be the first one to say that I don't think we've identified any silver bullet just yet other than you know, doing things differently, trying to step back and um, look at different ways to address a really complicated uh, situation. And then maybe the other part of the challenge is we've had to make some really difficult decisions here in the last six to eight months. And we've had to close a few, a few communities. And it's always the last resort. And, uh, you know, we certainly understand the impact to, to our residents, our employees and our communities. But we've just found ourselves in a situation where we had to make some adjustments and changes. And uh, some of these communities just were no longer sustainable. And so how many facilities have you guys closed in the last year? You know, we, we've closed nine communities now. You know, it, again, it's always a really difficult, it's a difficult thing to do. And, uh, you know, as, some, as a leader that has, has you know, I, I took on the opportunity to, to do one of those personally and directly. And, and I, I could never uh, underestimate the impact that has on a person and on a leader when you're sitting in front of a group of residents who may have lived in that small rural community, maybe their entire life. And so here you are at an advanced age, asking them to maybe move out of their community for the first time. And so I think that is just why it's so important for, for me and my team to be out in front of our, our congressmen and our leaders uh, so they can hear those stories. So they understand, you know, what the impacts of any type of nursing home reform looks and feels like to rural America. Absolutely. I, you've obviously spoken about some of the uh, successes and challenges that you've seen so far. I know we spoke back in January as you were just getting started. Uh, at this point, you know, with the year about halfway through, do you feel more or less or the same level of confidence in Good Samaritan's future and the future of the industry as a whole? Uh, you know, without a doubt, I feel I feel more confident. And, you know, I, I think we're, the reason why I'm maybe optimistic, maybe pretty optimistic, not pretty, I'm very optimistic uh, about our future and, and being a, a really strong nonprofit organization. One, we've had tremendous support through our acute care partner, Sanford Health, 
And I think what's what we're able to do as an integrated health system, uh, maybe differently than independent operators, and especially being in rural health, is we're able to invest in some innovations that other organizations just don't have the opportunity to do. You know, most recently, uh, we've announced a, a virtual care strategy and initiative uh, through the very generous gift of a philanthropist that uh, has our organization's namesake, T. Denny Sanford. He, he uh, blessed us with a $350 million gift. And we're going to be launching this game-changing initiative here in August and, and really getting out, you know, standing up a virtual care hub. And with the idea being that we're going to be able to bring care closer to home, whether you're in a small rural community um, in North Dakota or you know, maybe you're in Minneapolis, we're going to be able to bring those specialties to the bedside and maybe a new and exciting way. So I'm pretty darn excited about what the future holds and, and feel like we've got the talent and resources to, to make it happen here and, and be able to serve for another 100 years. And then I know that Good Samaritan uh, initially tried to keep its rural buildings open with agency workers. I know as many have done so, but it sounds like that strategy has changed at this point. And I'm just kind of curious why ultimately... Um, you guys decided to make that decision and what the plan is going forward when dealing with buildings that are understaffed and might need agency workers. You know, early on, we were, it's always been part of our philosophy that, you know, hey, if there's, if one of our communities has needs, uh, we're going to do everything we can to get the resources there. And one of the the blessings as a large organization is that, you know, we have additional resources that we can you know, find folks from across the country and whether that's bringing in agency support or moving caregivers from one community to another um, that might uh, be in, have a few more needs. Uh, we've been able to figure it out. But I think what we've learned now over the last uh, year and a half and, and probably more specifically, even over the last six to eight months, one, the people aren't there and the people that we are able to find are costing us anywhere from two to three times what it, what it did pre-pandemic. And so now we're paying physician wages for caregivers. We're paying a hundred plus dollars an hour uh, for these folks. And quite frankly, the math just doesn't work anymore. It's creating untenable situations. We're not able not able to subsidize uh, some of these locations in maybe a way that we were a year or two ago. It just the math doesn't work. And so we've decided to shift our strategy and say, look, we're going to do everything we can uh, to, to ensure that our people get the very best care and have an outstanding experience. But in some cases, that means we're going to have to limit admissions. And we've done just that because it, it just doesn't work anymore to continue to say at all costs, we're going to bring people in because what we're seeing and feeling here in the upper Midwest and across our footprint being in 22 states, it's, it's, it's just too expensive. Yeah, I, th- I certainly think that you're not the only ones that are that are feeling that way. It'll be interesting to see, you know, with the both the, the legislation on the state level and then now even the bill that was introduced this week to look into staffing agencies and their impact on on healthcare. It'll be interesting to see if there's any movement on that topic because I know a lot of people are interested in in seeing that happen. Absolutely. And now you talked a little bit about the positions that you guys have open currently. Uh, what is Good Samaritan doing to both recruit and retain staff? You know, especially at the leadership level. You know, I think that's been another thing that's evolved here over the last better part of the last year. Early on, we always talked about it being, gosh, we're in an operational crisis, we're in a clinical crisis, and it's quickly become a financial crisis. Uh, but beyond that, uh, you know, what we're seeing is the toll that it's taken on our leaders, the toll that it's taken on our director of nursing. And, you know, right now, we're sitting at nearly, we're seeing about 20% of our locations that have 
what I would describe one of their key leadership positions open, being the director of nursing, that what MDS coordinator or their administrator. So when you're talking about having that many key open positions, the impact is very real. So one of the things that we've been really focused on is how do we ensure that we have the infrastructure? How do we ensure that we have the well-being resources that are in place so that these folks you know, are, are able to continue to serve moving forward? So one of the things we've done is we've been really We've been really intentional about standing up in an administrator council and selecting, you know, a number of individuals across organizations. So they have direct uh, feedback with our executive leadership team. So they have a voice and so that we can be even more responsive than we had been in the past. I think the other pieces that we're really committed on, committed to is, and one of the passions of mine is how do we continue to develop and invest in these young leaders? And, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not going to pretend to say that I've got that all figured out yet. I just think that our young leaders have to be given the tools, resources, and support that they needed to develop and grow early on. Some of these folks, if you think about it, if they've started in the last two years, all they know is how to operate a community within the pandemic. I would hate to believe that some of them think that's normal because it's absolutely not. And I'm just passionate about ensuring we get these folks back to a new normal because the current new normal doesn't work. And I want them to see what it was like when I started 16 years ago and all of the joys and benefits that came with running, you know, a very complicated business, but under what I would describe the good old days. Absolutely. You know, it, it brings me back a little bit to to another question I had in terms of your leadership. What do you think have been some of the past professional and personal experience that have helped you in this role? As, as you talked about, you know, when you, when you were an administrator and all the different ways in which you've kind of grown into this, what, what are some of those things that come to mind? There's a, there's a number of things that immediately jump out to me. I mean, I, I think opportunities to serve both on the state level and federal level within ACA are always huge opportunities. I'm big on, you know, taking those opportunities as they're afforded to you, both in your communities, you know, on the larger stage. And then and in some ways, I've always, I'm always telling young leaders, you got to bloom where you're planted. And you're going to see a lot of challenges in this business. And, and sometimes they just seem to find you. And other times... You know, the longer you're in this, you're going to run into them, whether it's a really difficult survey. Maybe it's a federal survey. Maybe it's a CLIA inspection. Maybe it's a, you know, a QIO-directed review that you need to work through. I also had some crazy stuff with, you know, wildfires, and then I had a hurricane later on in life. So when you talk about the opportunities, I was always one of those folks that was quick to raise their hand and say, yeah, well, I'll give that a shot. Why not me? <laughs> let's, let's give it a whirl. But then I think the longer you're in this industry, it's just so dynamic. And I think that's the, the, the wonderful part about it. Not only do you get to serve people day in and day out, it's complicated, it's fun, and it's always challenging. And I know bringing back our conversation in January, you had mentioned that Good Sam was working with an organization to bring 250 international nurses into the company beginning in 2023. Is that still on track? And how significant do you think that will be as you reflect on the current staffing environment? On track, um, I would say that it's it's at a slow trickle, <laughs> um, gotcha. or maybe even a drip. Some days, uh, yes, we're seeing this initiative continue to um, come through and come to fruition. I would say everything's just behind schedule. No different than we're seeing parts and supplies for cars. You know, the right chips being delivered. You know, backing up all these new cars. That's kind of how it feels in this part of the industry as well. You know, we recently about a week ago. A couple of weeks ago, we welcomed a, uh, an RN from India in one of our Minnesota locations. And so, 
you know, yes, it's happening. It's just not happening at near the speed or volume that we had hoped it would 18 months ago when we were really starting to get this strategy off the ground. You know, so I think that's another one of those reasons why, you know, I wanted our, our congressmen and our, our, our senators to hear directly from us to say, hey, look, I know immigration is a hot button issue for both sides of the aisle, but, you know, here's how it, it, could, it has real impacts on rural America and rural health care. Yeah, it's been an interesting conversation because I know, like yourself and many others in the industry, uh, it could be a very helpful tool in terms of bringing workers over and, and boosting staff, certainly. And as you said, it becomes kind of a complicated issue at the congressional level. And so um, it seems like there there seems to be some more push toward that again. Uh, we'll, we'll see what the what the cards have in store in terms of any kind of responsiveness, but it seems like you guys are, are pushing that conversation a little bit more again at this point. hundred percent, hundred percent. No, I can't, I can't be more supportive of that strategy. And we, there's so many people that would love to work um, in the United States and some that are already here. We're just maybe not getting the visas across the, t- the more permanent visas across the, the finish line. And so I could not be a bigger champion for that strategy. And you brought this up a little bit, but I kind of was hoping you could expand upon it. You know, in what ways has Good Sam leaned on its partnership with Sanford Health during these challenging times? I think it's evolved. And, it, you know, we really came together at a pretty interesting time. In many ways, we had this perfect plan all mapped out of how we were going to continue to integrate. And in many ways, that just all kind of went in the garbage can for a couple of years. <laughs> and so we're, uh, we're, we're pulling papers back out. And I think rewriting that playbook. But I think what's been most rewarding and and cool for me to see is one, we're all one big family. And so I have the opportunity to, you know, to reach in and and grab resources from a a $7 billion health system. And, you know, how many post-acute providers get to do that where I can literally call up one of any 47 of our hospitals and pick their brain about what they might be seeing. So I I think that's pretty neat. But more tangibly, I think you know, our, our, our interoperability strategy. And basically, it's how we share information from our, our hospitals to our nursing homes has really started to, to evolve. You know, we quick, we've quickly seen and identified that, gosh, we have some huge workforce challenges. So what else can we do that is going to make our nursing and our caregivers job a little easier? And it's become pretty apparent that we've got some opportunities uh, in how we share information uh, through a through a transition from a care transition from the hospital to the nursing home, whether that's meds, whether that's orders, whether that's, you know, physically how we do, do the work, but we've been really intentionally focused on this interoperability strategy. So what's happening in the hospital can be pushed right over into our, into our caregivers and our nurses hands so we can provide a, a really safe and consistent experience and taking some of that burden off of our, our nurses. So just one of the different ways that we're, we're trying to, address and, and tackle our workforce challenges, but also, you know, leverage this this huge opportunity we have as an integrated health system. Yeah. And so, you know, the elephant in the room, obviously, we've talked about the, the advocacy for it and the ways in which you guys are trying to make your voices heard. But how do you think Good Samaritan will contend with the possibility of a staffing minimum and a potential $320 million decrease to nursing home Medicare funding in the next year, if that does go through as a one-year cut? We've demonstrated and, and figured out how to be an extremely resilient organization. And uh, like everything, we're gonna we're gonna figure it out. We're gonna figure it out. We're gonna get our really smart folks in the room, and we're gonna we're gonna navigate this thing. But I think what's important to call out it 
you know, being a provider that is primarily rural, uh, 70% of the residents we serve live in these rural communities. And I always like to say, it's we're not talking the, the, the town of 20,000 people that I grew up in that I thought was rural. We're talking about communities of 600 people, 800 people. And so we need folks to understand the types of access issues that might exist if we don't figure this out. And while we're, we're large enough and we've got the, the resources necessary to, to navigate this, we're going to continue to see additional challenges in our sector and in our space if we don't, uh, if we don't see some changes within, within the sector. So short term, are we going to be fine? Yes, but it will ultimately lead to uh, potentially some other difficult decisions, both here at the Good Samaritan Society and I think throughout the sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I certainly think that is something that people have have in mind and are, are thinking very actively about is the idea, you know, how many more nursing homes might close. I know ACA obviously came out with that report that estimated, I think it was 400 nursing homes would close by the end of 2022. And certainly, you know, when you think about where those might be, and, and like you said, in some places where there may only be 600 or 800 people and the next nursing home is only, or is 40 miles away, that, that becomes very complicated and can create some access issues, as you mentioned. Absolutely. And are we okay with that? Are we okay that people have to go that far to, to access care? And we've been just so blessed to have so many communities that have literally been a part of our development for nearly 100 years. They were, you know, some of those folks that said, hey, we need healthcare in this community. And yet, I'm just, I think we need to ensure that we've got the policy in place so we don't create this one size fits all. Um, system that works great if you're in Sioux Falls, but if you're in deep rural South Dakota, North Dakota, it's it, it just, it's not tenable. It just doesn't work. And now I know you talked a little bit about the relationship that Good Sam has with Sanford Health, but I'm just kind of curious overall, what does that relationship look like with hospital partners, you know, especially in the rural areas? And how has that changed over COVID? Uh, I, you know, I think the biggest thing we've learned is how much we need each other. I think we're, we're talking more uh, across the, the healthcare landscape than we ever did before. And, and I don't know that that's specifically unique to Sanford and Good Sam. Uh, that said, I think we can do it more efficiently and more effectively just because I, we know all, we know each other and we're a part of the same family. But what we've seen now is if, if, a, if a nursing home doesn't have staff, they're not going to take admissions. And so then it's backing up our hospitals. And I think what we're starting to see now and I think I have a unique perspective on this because I'm a part of that same family conversation every month about how we're doing financially as an organization is you know, our acute care partners are really starting to, to feel that pain in a different way because one, they're affected by staffing in, in all the same ways that we are. And two, they're starting to see length of stay creep up in the hospitals and they're starting to see their hospitals backed up because they can't get people through the care continuum, whether it's you know, transitioning people to nursing homes, whether it's transitioning people to home health, they're just not able to do it near as effectively. So I think we've seen that we need each other. I think the other piece is through the pandemic, we've learned how to, uh, you know, become really agile. And so, for example, one of the things we did was we stood up a, mo- a couple of different alternative care sites uh, up here in the, in the rural Midwest because our hospitals were at capacity. And so, again, I think it just shows the, the innovation, the flexibility that we've been able to really unlock through this partnership. So it sounds to me that you're saying, and, and this was leading into my next question, that some operators have indicated that the relationship between SNFs and hospitals has improved overall. 
So it seems to me that you're saying that, yes, it's improved. It's also become more of a partnership. Is that correct? Absolutely. I, I think there is, uh, there's more recognition around uh, the fact that we need each other. And we both, we're in, we're in this finite ecosystem. And if one part of that equilibrium gets off a little bit, it's going to have a pretty dramatic effect on the other, the other end. And I think we've seen that both internally, and I think you're seeing that now more externally as our hospital partners are starting to, to struggle uh, for, with a number of things specific to access, specific to workforce, and uh, trying to work, work people through the, the system. So absolutely, I think people are understanding how important we all are to the, the healthcare se- sector. Definitely. Now, thinking about all the challenges that we've put forth and recognized and all of the opportunities that are still available for the industry, do you see a place for heavily rural operators? And what about nonprofit operators? You know, do you guys have a place in this ever-changing SNF landscape? You know, I think it's an overwhelming yes. You know, our rural locations are part of these communities. They're often the fabric of these communities. In some places, they're the largest employer of these communities like many things, you know, care looks very different today than it did 50 or 100 years ago. And, and as an organization that has been serving that long, we're celebrating our 100 years here uh, next week with our annual operations conference. We're committed to figuring out a way that we're able to live out our mission for another 100 years. And uh, we know that the industry has to change. And we know, we know that we're able to figure out creative solutions uh, to provide unbelievable healthcare in rural communities and how to do it at scale and in an efficient way. Uh, but we're going to need the help of our policy makers and we're going to need the help of our, our state leaders to be able to figure this out. I don't think it's something that gets done in a matter of months. We're talking years, but uh, we also need everybody to understand uh, the impacts that we're going to see and experience if we do nothing or if we say, you know what, we're okay with 300 or whatever the number is nursing homes closing because we have too many. It just means, unfortunately, they're going to have people that are going a long way for care. And I don't think that's okay. Or you're going to see a disproportionate impact, whether that's in urban underserved areas, or you're going to see some rural disparity that I don't think we're okay with as a nation. That's all we have for this episode of Rethink. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com for the latest insights and industry news and subscribe to Rethink to be notified when new episodes are released. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Jordan Ryland for Skilled Nursing News. Thanks so much for listening.